right. Good morning, church. How are we all doing today? Doing well. That is good. My name is Frank Lucas. I happen to be one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, I spend a lot of time with the students. I'm also known as the one who makes you cry when you preach. And um, I'm sorry, that'll probably happen at some point throughout this gathering. Um, however, I'm, I'm very blessed uh, that I get to be with you this morning. I, I love Memorial Day weekend. It happens to be one of my favorite uh, weekends throughout the entire year, and this stems to when I was a, a young man. Uh, but particularly this weekend, um, I feel blessed to be able to share with you as we're wrapping up uh, the last couple of series that we've done. We've been focused really on community, on relationships, on how we care for one another, how we, we strive to live in, in deep corner four relationships uh, with each other. And really, there's been a lot of verses that we've been diving into, and some that we've gone back to over and over and over again. And one in particular uh, that I'm going to be sharing with a little bit this morning is from John chapter 15. And it reads this. It says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commitment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So this morning, Memorial Day weekend, I'd like for us to take just a moment to give thanks for all the brave men and women who have truly paid the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy each and every day. Some of those brave men and women have lost their lives, maybe on the battlefield, but many after the fact. And we want to take a moment to give thanks because they gave everything beyond what we would ever really know so that we could be here in this moment, so that we had the freedom and the right and the privilege to gather not at a church, but as his church. What an amazing thing that is. So this morning, I just want to take a few moments as we give thanks and say a prayer. Father, as we remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, we, the freedoms that we enjoy every single day, we think of how they have followed in the footsteps of you. And it was your son, Jesus Christ. And for that, we are so grateful, deeply grateful. We ask that you please continue to hold those brave men and women who gave their lives for ours in your eternal care. That you embrace them with loving arms. We also take a moment to remember their families. The tremendous price that they have paid. We ask for your blessing to fill their homes with peace and with hope with joy. We pray for your provision over their families, for love and for strength that will fill their lives, not just for this moment, but Lord, for generations to come. It's in the name of your precious son, the source of all of our hope and all of our comfort that we pray these things. In your name. Our Father, who art in heaven, today we remember those men and women who have died in service to our country. 
we pause to reflect on the lives sacrificed while protecting our freedoms. We confess that most days we are oblivious to the price paid by men and women in uniform, and yet we live every day in the freedom they laid down their lives to give us. So today, we recall the words of Jesus when he said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And let us not forget that each life lost represents other lives that are left to pick up the pieces. We lift up widows and widowers, brothers and sisters, parents and children of the service men and women who fought valiantly for our country. We ask for your peace and comfort to never leave them. God, we thank you for the lives of these men and women. May their memory and their service never be forgotten. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles that you'll find on your seat to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that's in page 963. Uh, this is where we're going to be spending the majority of our time together this morning. And if you do not own a Bible, um, I'm going to give you permission to steal from church today. You can actually take that Bible with you. So maybe it's not stealing because it's actually a gift, uh, but it's our hope, it's our prayer uh, that it's through God's Word that He reveals Himself to you that you may come to know the loving God that so desperately wants to have a relationship with you. It was like every other Monday morning. The alarm clock went off. I dismissed it. I laid there for just a few moments before literally rolling myself out of bed. I moseyed on down the hallway to our bathroom. I came back. My eyes still blurry from just waking up. I, I looked down on my floor at all my laundry, and I picked out the outfit that smelled the least bad. <laughs> I put it on. I worked my way down the stairs of our old home where it was cold. I walked into the kitchen. There was the table set. There were two chairs. My favorite box of cereal. Probably explains a lot. A bowl set for me, a spoon, a glass for my juice, and a deck of cards. We played cards every single morning before I went to school. I'm not supposed to say that because I was a Baptist. But we played cards every morning. And that morning was no different. I had breakfast, he drank his coffee. When breakfast was done, we said goodbye. I grabbed my backpack and my jacket and I walked out to the bus stop that was across the street on the corner of Burton Street and Wood Street down in Bristol, Rhode Island. And there I waited in the cold February rain for the bus to pick me up and bring me to middle school. The bus came and I got on and I went and sat in the back with my friends like every other Monday. It was so, so mundane. It was so ordinary. I remember sitting there at school 
and the day was going by rather quickly until the sky started to clear and the sun started to come out, and then it started to drag. I remember looking out the window, and I couldn't wait to get home so I could just go hang out with my buddy Donnie and my buddy Chris. The time finally came. The bell rang. We got onto the bus, and we went home. As soon as I got off the bus, I literally ran across the street to my home, opened up the door, said a quick hello, threw my backpack in, closed the door, and then took off. The only rule was really don't get hit by a car and be home by the time the streetlights come on. That was awesome in the summer because they came on at like 8.30. But in February, it was around 4.30, so I only had a little bit of time, about an hour and a half to go and play. And so we went, and I remember the, uh, the, there were some puddles still on the ground, and we were playing basketball and having a great time. Then the streetlights came on, and I thought, I better get home. So I made my way down Cottage Street, made my way down Wood Street, and made my way back into our old Victorian home up the steps, and I opened the door, and as I walked down the hallway, there it was again, another table set. But this time, there was two settings, one for me and one for him. No cards, no frosted flakes. He had been preparing one of the few meals that he knew how to make that wasn't awful, shepherd's pie. It was one of my favorites, though. And it still is. It's amazing how to this day it brings me comfort. There was only two place settings because both of my elder sisters were away at college. And my mother, who had worked to provide for our family, worked 11 to 7 at a hospital, so she was sleeping because her day was the opposite of ours. My father and I ate We enjoyed our meal. We talked. We'd cleaned up and and put the dishes away. And I was eager to get started on my project, to get started on my homework, which didn't happen very often. I didn't really like school. But he had gone and he had lit a, a fire in our living room. One of his favorite things to do, even on the rainy days, he would light a fire and he would grab a newspaper, the newspaper of the day, And he would sit in his white wing chair and just read. And he was just present. Without even saying a word, he was just present. And you could feel the warmth. I was in the adjacent room. It was our music room. And there was a desk in there. And as I said, I was anxious to do some schoolwork because we had just gotten a brand new, get this, word processor. It was like a typewriter with a monitor. And I was so excited because I called it a color monitor. But it really wasn't color. It was, instead of black and white, it was black and orange. And I was so excited. And I remember sitting there, and I had books all over the place. I remember specifically I was doing a project on airplanes, and and even more specific than that, on warplanes. And that was something that my father was so excited about and eager to help me with. Not very often did he put down what he was reading. But in this moment, he did. He put down what he was reading, and he came over and said, let me help. And I said, no. No, this is my project. So he went away. And then he came back again. He was persistent. Really, Frank, come on, let me help you out. You know, I love this stuff, and I I have a a lot of knowledge to share. And I said, no, it's my project. So he went away. He was persistent, but I'm his son. He came over again and said, you sure? And I said, Dad, leave me alone. This is my project. Just, Just leave me alone. So he did. 
He went, we didn't share any other words that night. I was so frustrated by this moment. I remember closing all the books, pushing the chair back, and shutting down the word processor. Didn't have any Windows updates, so that was good. I went up to bed. And then came Tuesday morning. It was an ordinary Tuesday morning. The alarm went off. I turned it off. A few moments later, I rolled out of bed. Eyes all groggy. I walked down, went to the bathroom, came back. Again, tried to find a pair of clothes that was not, you know. I got dressed, and I went down the stairs, and there it was. Again, my favorite cereal. My glass for my juice, my bowl, my spoon, and a deck of cards. Despite the argument, despite the, the disagreement that we had the night before, despite the hurt that I imparted on him, he was still showing love to me and still wanted to spend time with me. I said, I'm up. I didn't hear any response. I said, I'm up. Quiet. I got up from my chair. And I walked right around the corner. My father was a heavy smoker, and he wasn't allowed to smoke in the house, so we made him smoke in the basement where he could open a window and turn on the fan. I opened the door to the basement. That's where everything changed. He was gone. He passed away. And just in a moment, in the blink of an eye, I went from a 13-year-old boy to a fully grown man who is now the man of the house. Everything, absolutely everything changed. From that point on, every single time that I came down the stairs, the same routine, I would come down the stairs, I would walk into the kitchen hoping to see a bowl and a glass and a deck of cards. But there weren't any. The table was empty. And there was only one person around the table having breakfast. Every time, every time I pulled out the cereal, I could feel the pain and the hurt. Every time I sat down to do my homework at the word processor, the conversation that I had the night before replayed over and over. Leave me alone. It was the last thing that I said to my father. And it was the last thing that he heard his son say. The last words that he heard. I don't have a lot of regrets. But that is one. Everyone around me in that moment, I had a tremendous support network. I had a lot of friends. We had people from church. We had a large family. They all tried to pretend like life was normal. They tried to keep everything status quo the best that they could. But I'll tell you what, that bothered me so because the reality was it was not the same. And the fact that they tried to pretend like it was ripped me apart. I had a dad-shaped hole in my little 13-year-old heart. 
And most everyone, particularly my friends from church, they tried to comfort me by telling me that it was all part of God's plan. I knew they meant no harm. But please, I beg of you, when someone you know loses someone that you care about, don't tell them it's part of God's plan. If it's your goal to make someone mad at God, if it's your plan to make someone resentful of the God that we know and love and care so deeply for us, don't ever, ever say that he's the one that took away the person that you love and you care for. Please don't do it. I recognize that maybe not everyone in this room has a story like this one. But what I do know is this, is that everyone in this room, if you haven't suffered a major loss in your life, to this point, maybe it's uh, sometime soon, or sometime in the future, I should say, you probably will. You definitely will. We live in a broken world, a world filled with hurt and with pain and with suffering and with tragedy. If you haven't experienced loss yet, at some point, you will. And a few years ago, there was this phrase that was shared with me or this idea that was shared with me that's brought me a tremendous, amount, a tremendous amount of comfort. In fact, it's given me a tremendous amount of perspective, and it's this. It says, there is no growth without change, there is no change without loss, and there is no loss without pain, and there is no pain without grief. There is no change without loss. Excuse me, there is no growth without change. There's no change without loss. There's no loss without pain, and there's no pain without grief. So it's important that we learn to grieve well, particularly because we want to grow to become the person that God has called us to be. We want to experience life, and we want to experience it to the fullest. And if we want to do that, we have to learn. We have to learn how to grieve well. And to be honest with you, it took me years and years and years to learn how to do this. It wasn't until that I've recently uh, started to dive into this that I've started to uncover and heal from the hurt and pain of losing my dad when I was 13 years old. I was stuck in a rut. I was living it over and over and over again, and it was destroying all the relationships in my life, my family, uh, my immediate family, my, my relationships at work, my friendships. It was just destroying everything. It was this path of wreckage that I couldn't get out of the way of. But it was over the last few years that I've really started to dive into this it was over the last few years where I started to take a look back at my life and reflect over some of these defining moments, in particular when I lost my father, that I could actually see the stages of grief that I've gone through, the stages of loss that I've experienced. And it's in going through that that I've, I've really found comfort and I've found peace. I'd like to share those with you this morning. Number one is this shock. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, your world is completely flipped upside down. You lose a job. You lose the loved one. Your spouse asks for a divorce. Whatever it may be, your life is flipped upside down. Everything is surreal. It feels like you're stuck in this dream. You're stuck in this nightmare, and you're waiting to wake up, but yet it never happens. You keep walking down the stairs and praying that the table will be set for breakfast, but it isn't. You keep praying that you get up from the table and you're going to walk over the door and open and you're going to see the person that you love, but they're not there. We're in shock. For me, I found myself to be in shock for a long time. For some, it lasts days. For others, months. 
And for some, it can even last years. For me, it lasted almost two full years, a little over two full years to be exact. I remember when I transitioned from shock into number two. It was in my sophomore year of high school, sorrow. This is where grieving begins. You know what's amazing for a moment? I find it wonderful how much care and support that we share with each other as a community when we go through loss or when tragedy happens. I do. When, when the initial loss takes place or when the initial hurt takes place, uh, whatever it may be, the way that we as a church, the way that we as a community come around individuals is absolutely amazing. Do you know what the problem is, though? Is that when we need it most, that support has already faded away. We think, let's get the family through the week of the funeral. But then you go home and the dust settles. And that's when you need it most. It's when you go from shock into sorrow that you really need the support. And sorrow, sorrow is a godly emotion. Shock is not a godly emotion. There is nothing that shocks God. He is all-knowing. There is absolutely nothing that shocks him. That is purely a, a, a hurt, a created emotion by us. But sorrow, sorrow is a godly emotion. You know that the Bible says that Jesus wept? You know that the Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrow and he was acquainted with grief? Sorrow is a good thing. Grieving is a good thing. Grieving is how we get through the difficult seasons of life. And let me tell you, there will be difficult seasons of life if you haven't experienced them yet. But it doesn't take long for our sorrow to become our struggle. Let me say that again. It doesn't take long for sorrow to now become our struggle. And this is where we allow ourselves to be defined by our circumstance. Not by who we are, not by how God sees us, but rather defined by our circumstance. This is where we begin to start asking difficult questions, the why questions. Why me? Why now? Why this? Why did you do this, God? And you know what? Don't ever, don't ever let anyone tell you it's not okay to ask why. It is okay to ask why. In fact, I would, I would encourage you to ask why. Jesus asked why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me tell you, if the Son of God can ask why, you can ask why. The test of your faith is not whether or not you ask why. The test of your faith is whether what you do and how you respond when you don't get an answer. It's okay to ask why, but you need you need to learn how to respond in a way that is godly when you don't hear back. Sadly, I find that this is the stage where most people, ten, most people tend to spend the rest of their lives. They become a victim of their circumstance and they can't get out of it. They get stuck in this moment. And as a result, they never get to experience true healing. They never get to experience the peace and the joy and the hope that comes through going through the rest of this grieving process. Now, don't get me wrong. As you go through this process, it doesn't make the pain any less. It's still going to hurt. As I've gone through this, it didn't suddenly erase that moment from my life. As you go through this process, it's not going to all of a sudden make it all better. But it gives you hope. 
It allows you to find peace and joy in the midst of some of the darkest moments of your life. And most people get stuck in this rut because what it takes to get out of it is extremely difficult and it's extremely painful. You have to surrender. You need to wave the white flag. You need to say, you know what? I can't do it on my own. When you surrender your trouble over to God, then and only then will you find true peace in the midst of the storm. Then and only then. If you're constantly asking why, which is okay to do, but you never get beyond that and surrender that hurt and that pain and that struggle and that darkness and that, that whatever it is that's deep down inside of you that's ripping you apart, if you never get to the point where you surrender that over to God, you will never, ever experience the peace that is yours to experience through Jesus Christ. It ain't gonna happen. It's in our weakest moments that he is made strong. It's when we're forced to our knees that he is lifted high. You need to surrender it over to God. And when this takes place, we seen, find ourselves in number five, which is sanctification. This is where God starts to bring beauty from the ashes. This is where God starts to, to make a beautiful masterpiece out of the ruins. When you seek to be more like God, when your prayers become less of me and more of you, O oh God. When you stop trying to be the creator and you take comfort in being the creation. Let me say that one again. This is a hard one. When you stop trying to be creator and you actually take comfort in being his creation. See, this process of sanctification, it takes time. And it's constant. It's happening all around us. It's happening day in and day out. And when you finally acknowledge, when you finally acknowledge that you are made in his image, that he is the, that he in fact is the author and perfecter of your life, that his way is better than your way. When you allow God to shape you into that masterpiece, despite your messiness, despite your brokenness, despite your sin, despite your shame, despite your guilt, all of that, and when you allow him to do this work in you, that's when you move into the final stage of grief and of loss, which is this, service. God wants to take your greatest pain and turn it into your life's message. God wants to use what you want to talk about least, and he wants to use that more than anything what you want to use least, what you want to talk about least is what God wants to use most. Your life message will come from that darkest moment. But how do we go all the way from grief to service? What gets us through? See, what we know is what gets us through. What we remember is what gets us through. And for that, we're going to turn to God's word. We're going to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 963 in the Bibles in your seat. We're going to read the letter that Paul wrote to his dear friends. Picking up at verse 3, it says this. All praise to God, the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles 
so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident, confident that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in the comfort that God gives. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond, beyond our ability to endure. Not to the point of breaking, beyond our breaking point. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, in fact, he says, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves. And we learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him. And he will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Amen. What a beautiful passage of scripture. Three main points that I want to pull from this this text here is this. We can have peace because we know that God is the source of all comfort. We see that in verse 3. Did you know that in this book there are over 31,000 verses? 31,102 to be exact. And in this book, over 5,000 promises are made to us. Nearly one-sixth of God's word, in some way, shape, or form, is a promise to you. Think about that for a second. One-sixth a promise to us. He so desperately loves you. He so desperately wants to help you get through the, not only the good times, but to help you help see you through some of the difficult, most challenging moments in your life. I wish I had time to share promise after promise after promise that God makes with us, but there's one thing that I want you to know this morning, and it's this, that our God is for us, that our God is with us, and that our God will never, ever abandon us. And I know that because he loves us. Our God is for us, he is with us, he will never abandon us, and that's all because that he loves us. In Isaiah 49, it says this, never, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child that she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hand. One translation says this, I have engraved you, on the palms of my hand. Do you know how our name was engraved on the palms of God's hands? With the blood-soaked nails that we use to hang them on a cross like that. Our God will never, ever abandon us. He will never leave you. There is no greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. You have the greatest friend in all the world. His name is Jesus. He loves you this much this much. And we can have peace because we know that God is the source of all comfort. We can have joy because we know that we're not alone. Verse 4 says, he comforts us 
in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. See, we are called to live in a deep interdependent relationship, not only with God, but with one another as well. We receive comfort through God, through his son, from God, through his son, Jesus Christ. And in turn, we are called to share that that same comfort, that same love, that same compassion in grace, in mercy, in forgiveness to everyone that we come in contact with. And what's amazing is it's when we actually do that, that we actually experience the gift of grace and compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness and all that, and all that love. When we comfort others, we are comforted. We receive comfort through God, through Jesus, and we share it with others. I want to I take a look back at that passage that we started the morning with. John 15, it says this. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. We, it's amazing. I, I love this idea. We can have joy in the most difficult moments of our life because we're not alone, because we live in community. And when we do this, and when we do this well, we will be filled with so much joy that we will be overflowing with joy, despite our challenges. We can have peace because we know that God is the source of all comfort. We can have joy because we know that we're not alone. And we can have hope because we know that there is more to the story. We were crushed, overwhelmed, beyond our ability to endure. And we thought that we would never live through it. We expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and we learned to rely only on God. As I mentioned earlier, there are moments in our lives when we are absolutely forced by the weight of the world to our knees. Just as I was when I was a young man, just as you will be if it hasn't happened already, and it's in these moments, like I said earlier, our greatest weakness, that is where God is most strong. The stages of grief are this. It was shock, sorrow, struggle, surrender, sanctification, and service. We go from struggle where we're the victim to surrender, where we're trusting in God. We're only able to do that if we truly believe that there is more to the story. If that it doesn't end in that moment. I'll tell you what, I don't know where I would be if I thought this is where my story ended. I can't imagine what my life would look like. We go from struggle to surrender when we believe there's more to the story and we trust that there can be purpose in our pain. We trust that there can be a purpose in our pain. Am I saying that God took my father away? Absolutely not. People have said that to me before. They've said, well, God must have wanted your father. It was time for him to be taken home. Seriously? Really? I've said this to other people that have gone through loss, but really, think about that for a second. God, the creator of all the universe, needed my father more than I did as a 13-year-old boy. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. 
I believe in a loving God. I believe in a loving Father. But the sad thing is, guys, is that we live in a broken world. And way too often, we try to provide comfort to the brokenhearted by answering questions that we have no business trying to answer. When someone that we know is going through a tremendous difficult time in their lives, we, we say, like, oh, I get it, buddy. I'm sorry, God has a greater plan. Oh, yeah, this, this is part of God's will for your life. You just gotta lean in. Seriously? What are we doing? We can't do that. We can't do that. We don't have the answers. This passage, this entire book tells, tells us to point people where? To Jesus, the source of all comfort. Not to try to answer the questions. We're not a God. We're never gonna be like God. We're never gonna know everything. So stop doing it. Stop doing it. But if the, the world and the people in it are broken, how can we have peace? How can we have joy? How can we have hope? I find one of the, probably one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible is in Romans 8, chapter 28. It says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I love this passage of scripture, but man, is it misused all the time. Paul is not, not saying these things. Paul is not saying that all things are good. They ain't. Paul is not saying that everything that happens is God's will. Nope. Bad things happen. And bad things happen to really good people. And bad things happen to people that love God. And bad things happen to people that are called according to his purpose. It's amazing to me how God has taken my biggest pain. It's amazing to me how God has taken the, the hurt and made it my life's message. That's why I started serving. I couldn't help but share the love and joy and peace that I've experienced in the midst of my trial. That's why I started getting involved with the students. I never wanted another student to feel unloved in a moment like that. It's been amazing the opportunities that I've been afforded to be able to share my experience with students that were going through very similar circumstances. It's why I'm standing here this morning. Years ago, if you had asked what I'd be doing Memorial Day weekend, 2017, I guarantee you I, not would, I would have not said giving a sermon on losing a loved one. Probably would have been playing baseball with my buddies. The very thing that I've wanted to talk about least in my life has been what God has wanted to use most. And when I surrendered that over to him, when I acknowledged him as my creator and, and I took comfort in being the creation, it's been amazing to see all that he has done. When I was 13, there was way more to the story than what I could possibly see. In chapter four, 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, for our present troubles are small, pretty hard to read sometimes, isn't it? Our present troubles are small. I'll tell you what, I've been in the midst of some circumstances where I don't feel like my troubles are small. But to the creator of the universe, they are. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. Our trouble will produce glory. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. The week after my father died, when I came downstairs and had breakfast, there was a lot of things I couldn't see. The table was barren. And if I allowed myself to be stuck in that moment, if I allowed myself to keep my eyes fixed on this rather than him, the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you stuck at the table? Are you stuck fixing your eyes on the things of this world and the, and the trouble that is so very small? I know for a large part of my life I was. But it wasn't until I was able to fix my eyes on him that I was able to experience joy and hope and peace and love. Throughout the entire series, we've been sharing stories. Stories from members of our community and members of our church. And this morning, I'd like to once again share a story with you from a, a dear friend of mine. Joyce, who, who's just been through a tremendous amount of tragedy in her life, but has found a way to use her pain to bring glory to God. The things that she wanted to talk about least is what God wanted to use most, and he did. Let's watch. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joyce Bassett Ennis. I came to Community Covenant in 1993. Uh, my family and I came in um, through my husband's suggestion. Um, at that time, we were dealing with uh, his drug addiction. Um, but we, had, we came in very needy with a lot of problems. My son Shane had been burned when he was two years old. It was... Um, a lot of uh, surgeries for Shane, and we dealt with a lot of um, just trying to find out the best fit for him in school and um, trying to give him the most normal life as possible after he got burned. Shane, um, when he was two years old, uh, we were in a van, and the motor of the van caught on fire, and Shane was in the back of the van. But Shane was burned over 80% of his body. Um, at that night when we went to the hospital, the doctor that spoke to us um, told us that Shane had a five to 10% chance to live and actually that he hoped that Shane would not survive. So that night I went home and I, I, my prayer was, Lord, just, just take him. Um, it was my darkest hour. Uh, it was definitely not the way that I thought our lives would be. And I just began to pray out my hysteria, like, God, we're your children. This is my son. This is your child. 
um, you know, I love you. Like, how could you allow this to happen to our family? And in the midst of crying out um, in prayer, I felt God impress on me. It wasn't an audible voice, but I still remember the words to this day. And what he said was, aren't I Shane's father? And don't I know what's best for him? And can't I take even better care of him than you or your husband, Norman, can? And it, that voice, that voice that wasn't audible, gave me instant peace. Um, I got to my feet. I got a call from the hospital. They believed, the doctors believed that Shane could hear them. And at that moment, I just had to see him. I, I just thought if he's still in there, if that little boy is still in there, then my, his mother has to be there for him. So I immediately went to the hospital by myself. Uh, my husband was not ready to accept that Shane was not going to die. And I began to speak to Shane and it was so hard to see him. Um, he was swollen, his fingers, they t already told me he was going to lose his fingers. Um, he was hooked up to all kinds of life support, and um, I emotionally began to step outside of my emotions and just begin to try to reach him. And um, when I began to talk to him, immediately every machine that he was hook up, hooked up to began to go off. They transported him to Shriners, where he began many years of surgeries as his body grew they had to replace some of his skin that was tightening up with skin grafts um, and that voice that i described uh, that's what would carry me through the surgeries aren't i shane's father you know and uh i knew um that he was with us in this this terrible misfortune that had happened to us shane uh, was burned in 79. His brother was born in 1980. Uh, I think that Shane being burned took a huge toll uh, on my husband. He had been away from the Lord for a while. We had married as Christians, but he succumbed, began to succumb to um, drug addiction. Um, and when we came to Community Covenant, um, this is the battle that he was fighting and um, Pastor Dennis at the time sent him to um, Teen Challenge down south. Um, but each time he would come home, he would relapse again, whether it was six months that he was clean or, and, or however long he was away, he would always come back and relapse again. So finally we separated for a long period of time. And my younger son, who was by this time a teenager, he began to be angry at God and angry at our family situation. And um, he began to um, act out in ways that I felt like I, I couldn't help him. And it was finally the day that his girlfriend called me and said that he was also using cocaine. Um, that I went into his room, I snapped on the lights. I said, I'm not going to lose another family member, another one, someone I love to this drug. We need to get you help. Ben's condition worsened. Uh, I had turned to the church a lot for help. Um, but it was only a short period of time where I came 
home one night. I was on my way to my second job. There was no reason for me to stop at home. I had packed a lunch, but I just thought I'm gonna see what the guys are eating or if they're even home. And when I walked in the house, uh, Shane had just come in a few minutes before me and he was in his room and uh, there was, I was talking to Shane a little and I picked up a stray laundry basket that um, I went to throw in Ben's room and when I f went to throw it in his room, I saw that he had taken his life. Um, and in the midst of my screaming, um, Shane came in it was amazing. Shane took complete control. Um, he just first of all said, Mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? And as he came into the room and saw, he immediately began to call God down. Like, God, you are here. You're, you're here with us. My husband, Norman, he was devastated at the loss of his family and probably devastated to feel the blame that people, you know, attributed to him uh, with his drug addiction and not being able to get it under control. Ben died in February. In September, the end of September uh, of that year, which was 2000, um, we got the call that my husband had, um, he had moved back to Rhode Island and the Rhode Island area to try to build a relationship with his older son, Shane. And um, when Norman came back, we got the call that he, a few months after he'd been back, that he had had a drug overdose. Um, so at that point, um, I felt as though I had to be the best that I could be for Shane. I felt like, um, Shane had been through so much in his life that if he had to worry about me or if something happened to me, um, because when you lose a child, really you just want to die. <laughs> and um, so Shane became a huge motivation to me. Like I just wanted so much to be the best person I could be for his sake so he didn't have to worry about me. Uh, but at the end of that three years, when I was still like, just so frustrated and despairing. Um, somebody had come upstairs one Sunday and they told me about a woman who had come into the church and she said to Ruth, uh, I am here because my husband died and I am trying to find some hope. And uh, Ruth came up with tears in her eyes to tell me. And uh, I went home and I just began to think about it and I just thought, I, I wonder if there's something that I can do. And uh, I turned to Sean, to Sean Smith. He was running the divorce care program. And I just said, I wonder if there's anything out there that I feel like the church needs to have something in place for people when they come into the church um, in this condition that we have something to offer them. and. I wonder if there's anything out there that maybe I could help with. And Sean immediately said, um, I think there's a sister program, it's called Grief Share. And he said, if you like, I could order it for you. And he did. In doing Grief Share, uh, it gave me hope for my own future, I guess. These beautiful people that would come in so broken and um, 
it, it was just such a gift to me to see them come alive again. And uh, I, I'd like to share a verse from Isaiah. He said that the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. And I remember writing out this whole chapter in my journal. Um, but I, I feel like my mission all these years later, I, like I'm taking part of Jesus's mission. And that's a verse I always read at Grief Share. But also what I drew out in my journal was, to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes. I wrote out this whole chapter when I first began to go through um, everything that I was going through with my husband's drug addiction, all the losses we had. We lost our house, we lost jobs, um, everything that we had gone through. Um, this is the entire chapter. I wrote it out word for word. I think for the years that I was grieving, um, just grieving, um, it was such a dark hole. Like for those years, I really felt like I wanted to, to die. And um, when I came into other people's pain, you know, through uh, having them come into grief share, there were people that had uh, just as great a pain as me and greater. Um, and it became um, such a purpose in my life. Uh, every time I think about like maybe not doing grief share, I feel like it's um, when the master comes back, will he find you um, doing what he's called you to do? And I feel like until he shows me something else, um, this is what he gave me to do and it gives me hope in my life and hope that I can share with others. He'll make beauty come from the ashes. I don't want to pretend like I know what you're struggling with this morning or what pain or what hurt you may or may have not gone through. But what I do know is that at some point we are all sitting around the table we're faced with a decision. We're faced with a choice if we're going to stay there and be defined by our circumstances or if we're going to stand up and fix our eyes on Jesus. So this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me because there are some things that I know. I know that we can live in peace in, even when life doesn't make sense. I know that we can live with joy even when everything around us is broken. I know that we can live with hope because even in the midst of life's most difficult moments, there is more to the story. God has never, ever, ever in all of history made a person that he does not love. God in all of history has never ever made a person and created someone that he doesn't want to have a deep, a deep loving relationship with. And our God, our loving Father, has never made a person for which he does not have a greater purpose. 
and it's because I know these things to be true, that we can stand here gathered, not in a church, but as his church, and proclaim that in the midst of the challenge, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of our greatest pain and our greatest suffering, that he is good. And that we can proclaim that it is well with our soul. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for, for engraving our names on the palms of your hands. With blood-soaked nails that we drove through them to hold you to the cross because there is no greater love than to lay down one's life God, we are so thankful. Lord, we all have challenges and we have hurts, but God, you can bring us through them and it's our prayer that we can come together as a community and go through them together because we are not alone. It's the very thing that we wanna talk about least that you wanna use most. And God, we pray that we are a church that uses our brokenness to point towards your glory. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who makes all things possible. Amen.